incorporate ideas like Spectre from James Bond, right? You have a secret cabal of global financiers pulling the strings, funding terrorists, creating unrest in the areas where they want to make the most money and hurting people for the sake of their own bottom line. I mean, that that's, you're not even changing anything. <laughs> that's, that's just history. Live from the Mundangerous Lecture Hall in New York City, I'm your host, Shane. And I'm your host, Ishan. And welcome to episode 280 of Total Party Thrill, a podcast for game masters and players where we discuss our campaigns in order to inspire yours. In this episode, we're talking about using history in your games. But first, the party fights gravity in the Gates of Morning campaign. And later, the historian reads all the books in the Character Creation Forge. Not only reads, but cites them, Ishan. Ooh, I hate bibliographies. <laughs> Total Party Thrill is brought to you this week by Hero Forge. Hero Forge offers fully customizable tabletop miniatures with dozens of fantasy races and thousands of parts to choose from. You can get your favorite custom miniatures in a variety of materials, including plastic or metal, Ishan. I like metal. You know, it feels uh, it feels more real, even though it is by definition not real. What could be more real than using their easy-to-use design tool and building the perfect miniature online using fully 3D in-depth character creator right from your web browser? Look, in Q4, they've added freaking bear folk. Uh, there's like dragon heads and wings and horns and tails. And I, of course, I'm going to put them on bear folk. Uh, they've got furry body types, plant-grade and digit-grade legs, and a new piercing system. They've also added epic weapons. I don't know what that means, but it sounds epic. <laughs> I guess you have to go to Hero Forge to find out. All right, Ishan, so where are we in the Gates of Morning campaign? So the Gates of Morning campaign is our fifth edition D&D game set in Eberron, a sequel of sorts to the original Morning Glory campaign. And in Korth, the austere capital city of Karnath, the party is chasing a killer. Deep beneath the city, the party has discovered a clan of goblinoids calling themselves the Kesh Sharat. And after winning their trust, they are told that Elaine's secrets lie further in the tunnels. The hobgoblin leader, Zertals, warns them that the path ahead is blocked by noxious fumes, and that they should not carry an open flame lest they ignite the fumes. But they come to a low point in the tunnels that is filled with a green, poisonous gas though they quickly find out it does not affect them. Orden, of course, takes a sample of it before they exit into clear air and an apparently empty cave. Probably won't come into play later. No, that, no. What? A vial of poison? Chekhov's poison? (laughs) Uh, So once they arrive in this empty cave, Lenore checks the perimeter and discovers an illusory wall with another tunnel hidden behind it. This one, though, ends in a real, actual stone wall, with no sign of a switch or a hidden passage. So, after trying to figure out a way through, Warden remembers the Readrian incantation that they found on Paul's journal, and he speaks it aloud. On the psyche, no scars remain. And the wall disappears, revealing a cylindrical room about 50 feet across and 30 feet high. The walls are smooth stone and arcane tools are scattered around the floor. And in the center of the room, there's a teleportation circle etched in the ground. Within it, a 15-foot metal spire rises, topped with an empty cradle 
like the setting for a huge jewel. Suddenly, the party is dragged forward and smashes into the far wall as the doorway seals up with stone once again. Gravity is reoriented in the room, and they can now walk along the length of the rounded wall. Staring straight up, Lenore and Switch walk until they can see the rest of the party standing above their heads on the other side of the room. But then the arcane tools all begin to vibrate. They rise into the air and combine with one another in odd configurations to form large blocks. Light within them starts to glow, and they start to fire beams of magical energy at the party. So Zan and Switch are able to hack a few of them apart, but the smaller pieces now each fire their own beams, and the barrage actually intensifies. But they do find that when a piece is actually broken into a fragment that seems too small to fire, it glows brightly and then explodes, setting off other pieces around it in a fiery cascade. Uh, never heard of a grenade cascade before. Nope, not at all. Not at all. It doesn't need to show up in every single game, but somehow it does. Our GM is a hack. (laughs) So every few seconds, gravity changes, throwing everyone to the other side of the room in a crumpled heap. But the floating guns just turn and fire again. So, searching for a way out, Lenore then spots a seam in the base of the spire, now located on the ceiling. Uh, Warden turns into a giant constrictor snake and coils around the base, trying to sink his fangs into the seam. He damages a metal panel, but he takes the full force of a salvo of beams and is knocked back into human form, crashing to the ground. Lenore then activates her Orion bow and fires a single arrow dead center at the panel blowing off the entire cover. Pieces of parchment held within begin fluttering down, and everyone can see a blinking light deep inside. So, Bramble polymorphs Zan into a giant ape who leaps up, grabs the base, reaches inside, and yanks out an entire set of wires. Suddenly, gravity reasserts itself, reorients everything, uh, and everyone falls to the ground. All the tools fall as well, uh, where they all begin to glow brightly. And we'll find out what happens next, next week. So this week, we're talking about using history. Uh, What what does that even mean, Shane? I I have no idea what you're talking about. I, for one, live in the moment, just like uh, when I GM. Lucky you. (laughs) Some of us are doomed by our past (laughs) mistakes, Ishan. I have no memory of the last eh, four years. Good. (laughs) We're finally coming out of our national malaise. (laughs) So history is, of course, the mutually agreed upon story of the past. And I want to highlight story. (laughs) Uh, There's a famous quote from Napoleon Bonaparte. uh, History is a set of lies agreed upon, uh, which is, of course, a misquote of Voltaire, which was attributed uh, to him in translation by Ralph Waldo Emerson. So even our framing of history is itself a story we've mutually agreed upon, a lie. Yes, and Ralph Waldo Emerson, of course, is a character invented by Albert Einstein. (laughs) Damn. (laughs) But none of it was in French. I don't understand. (laughs) So story is at the root here, right? Uh, It's the motivations that drive the action, the consequences that result either deserved or undeserved for the people, 
right? Uh, we tell history, we frame it in terms of uh, people and actors, we frame it in terms of nations, but those nations are made up of, you know, their leaders or, you know, their parliamentarians or their great generals or their great scientists, right? Like our culture is defined by the people who uh, live within it. Um, and, and that's what makes a historical story sink in, right? It's, it's the story of the people who are the actors in that story. You know, I'm by trade a nonfiction writer, but I've also written fiction, right? Grass is always greener when, uh, you're writing fiction. You're like, uh, I, I just wish, um, I was reporting on something so that, uh, I knew where the plot was going to go. I would just write down what happened. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, uh, when you're actually like reporting on something, you're like, guy, this would be just a little bit better with a slight tweak to the narrative and but i'm not allowed to do that mm -hmm. in your rpg you are totally allowed to do that right like you're kind of putting together like if you're creating a, a world if you're homebrewing or you're coming up with uh you know npc plots or whatever you're you're basically um writing a, a false history narrative and you can look at actual history and just write down what actually happened but you have the ability and you know i, I would say it's probably better if you do this to tweak things a little bit and make it more uh, interesting. Change the timing just a tiny bit. Change um, exactly what a, a person said to just drive home the point a little bit better. Yeah, so let's talk about ways that history shows up in gaming, right? Um, the first of which is the lore of the game world, right? As you said, as you're writing out your settings history, um, this is the history that your characters understand, right? From their perspective, this is the past. This, these are the events that precede them. Uh, yes, my historical game setting, uh, which is completely true to life, and it's medieval Europe, and that's why we don't have any uh, trolls or female adventurers. <laughs> sure, there's that. There's also just, you know, what happened a thousand years ago in Eberron that led us to, uh, you know, 998 YKK. YKK? Uh, YK. Uh, YK. Just YK. straight up YK. YKK is on my zipper. Yeah, it totally is. There's also like the history of the characters themselves, right? Both the um, the backstory that you bring them uh, to the table with, and then also the story that they write as they play through the world, right? Um, you create history in a game. Um, it has all the same sort of vulnerabilities and foibles of of a real written history right like it's one of the reasons it's dif difficult to catalog in the moment because uh, you don't have the full perspective but like those motivations they inform the events they recast past events that you've even lived at the table um, as your character evolves over the course of their play yeah and the story of the characters is a great filter through which to view the lore of the game world and, and the history right like if you get a pre-written setting there's always that extremely long mostly useless timeline of every important event that has happened over the past million years yeah but they're just events right that's the thing is like the, it's so bad and boring because they don't tell you they're not stories right they're, right they're they're rote lists they're not they're not motivations and characterizations there's no protagonist and antagonist it's not framed in the in the way of like the the victorious over the vanquished it's just like Oh, and then in the year 3000, uh, mankind discovered hyperspace travel and it opened up our interstellar empire. And it's like, cool fact. Does Han Solo care about it? 
exactly. Like, tell me about like the story of the discovery of hyperspace, and now I'm interested in that, and that's like a fact that I want to incorporate. Right, like it matters less um, what date Zephram Cochran invented warp travel in Star Trek, but the fact that he did and who he was and that he was definitely an alcoholic and he was just trying to make a buck, those are the cool, interesting things that like people may or may not know. So the lens through which you can view all of those events or that timeline that you put together or that are in this book that you've paid for, look at them through the eyes of the characters in your game? What do they care about? What matters to them? Which of these things do they not know about at all or they've never even heard of? Or like if someone told them these things, they would look at them like they're insane. Right. Uh, and then a third way that history can show up in your game is is as inspiration for your scenarios, right? Like you look at the past, the, the, the real events of the past, and like that's gameable, <laughs> right? Like there's a nugget here that I can turn into an adventure for my game or a mystery for my game or a conspiracy for my game. Um, let's take those and, and, and explore and see what happens. Yeah, that's why every single battle I put all of you through, uh, you're attacking Russia in the winter. Oh, okay. You're, try you're really trying to teach us. I want you to fail again and again. Why do I have to keep being the French? <laughs> All right, so let's talk about using uh, real-world history in your setting lore. So I think this is a place where you want to follow Ken Height's advice. Start with Earth. Um, the thing about Earth is that we have real history to draw from, and it's pretty good. <laughs> you know, like, we have a lot of it, uh, and we know a pretty decent amount of it. It's pretty familiar to a lot of people. So find the period in Earth's history that excites you and start pulling the levers, right? Start manipulating it, start bending it and, and seeing what happens. Right. If there isn't a section or a time period of real Earth history that fascinates you, then I'm not actually really sure that you're nerdy enough to play RPGs. Yeah. <laughs> actually, the period of history on Earth that excites me was uh, five minutes ago, Ishan. I live in the moment. Uh, I like a hundred years from now when we don't have to deal with all of this garbage. Fingers game. crossed. <laughs> my, my favorite uh, period on Earth is a post-D&D society. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> so you've got real-world geography, uh, nations, and cultures that you can draw from. With geography, obviously, this is, you know, it isn't a problem. Nations and cultures, though, you do want to be really careful that you are not just leaning into your own personal biases or stereotypes uh, that you might have of those cultures. Yeah, but, you know, if you are grounded um, in sort of the, the, the histories of those cultures from the perspective of those cultures, you're certainly able to use those. Um, you know, like you look at Western Europe uh, is, is often the touch point of fantasy, right? Um, at least by Western Europeans. And and so, like, sure, you can have the English analogs, the French analogs, the Spanish analogs, right? Like, certainly Eberron is very rooted in that concept. Um, I don't think anybody looks at Thrain and says, oh, yeah, no, that's not Spain. Um, or Breland, you know, in, in the same fashion. Um, but, like, I, you can do that. And then everybody kind of has a baseline for what to assume. And they can start doing that mental mapping of, like, oh, okay, yeah, so, like, they're theocratic, but they're theocratic in that powerful, like in the in the management of power, not necessarily in like the administration. Right. And you can strip away the cultural trappings and just use the skeleton, which also further removes it. Mm -hmm. um, and it makes it a lot easier to sort of bring into your game, no matter like what the 
tone or your setting is and makes it a lot easier to sort of avoid um, inadvertent stereotyping. Um, and then you can also look at like, you know, more prehistorical societies, right? Like early hunter-gatherer societies where we don't have stereotypes to really draw from because we don't know enough to to really peg their culture, but you can learn how they interacted and, and bring that to your world um, to understand how tribal societies grew and how like the shift to agriculture became uh, a um, hallmark of, of humanity. And, and then look at that in your game, right? What would a society that's out on the verge of that look like? Uh, what I'm hearing is that uh, you're definitely going to be into my Clan of the Cave Bear LARP that I'm setting up. <laughs> only if I only have to grunt for communication. <laughs> it's exactly what it is. I think your name's going to be Thak. Oh, good. I, oh, I wanted to be Thak. <laughs> uh, beanbags, I brought actual rocks. <laughs> Verisimilitude. It's cold in here. I'm starting a fire <laughs> with, by banging two stones together over some kindling. Uh, you can also strip wholesale events from history or politics. Uh, one easy thing to do is major battles and conflicts. Um, you just look at what happened in a battle, who moved where, uh, what were the lines and what were the consequences, and you <laughs> steal them for your game. Yeah, or or what were the outcome? Like, what happened uh, to either the victor or the loser in a given battle? Right. Like, if you look at like the Spanish Armada, right? It's kind of it's held up as like this inflection. I can't. Point. It's underwater. That's a good point. <laughs> <laughs> or at least enough of it is. Um, but like, it, it's looked at as the sort of inflection point in European history, right? So, what happens? What what happened to uh, England and what happened to Spain after the Spanish Armada? Um, you could easily draw that parallel in your world, right? Like you might make that your adventure scenario is like you're you're in Spain in the aftermath, right? You've just lost uh, a decisive battle that puts your national strength into question. What happens? Or you could be on the English side, right? Like you've just won this decisive battle and introduced yourself on the world stage. Uh, now what do you do? Right. You can put this anywhere, right? You could say, we're going to fight a battle. There's an armada coming your way. Um, let's roll for weather effects, I guess. <laughs> There's also that, I, I suppose. <laughs> and and see how you do. And you're using that as sort of like the touchstone inspiration for, you know, a big naval battle. Or you said it 100 years ago, and like that is sort of the, the finding thing that uh, led to the ascension of the current nation that you're in. Right. I, I personally want to see Spanish armada with dragons. Uh, what do you mean? There weren't dragons? Well, I mean... Oh, a storm, uh-huh, out the, of nowhere. The cover-up, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, very evocative events in history work too. Stalingrad, right? Like, the that's sort of like the image of the city under siege for what seems like years, right? And the sacrifice that goes into it for, uh, you know, one group fighting for literally their, their homeland... Uh, and the other fighting against time uh, and and Russian winter, as always. <laughs> yeah, I think it really shows where adjusting the timeline dial on these events just a very small amount completely changes the kind of game or session that you can draw from it. So there, there are so many combinations and possibilities. Like with Stalingrad, it can be during the siege if you want. Dial it a little bit earlier and the siege is approaching and you don't necessarily know if you're going to get locked into it you could 
be the Russians who are dealing with the siege. You could be the Germans where you're not actually Nazis. You're just, you know, an army that is laying siege to to another city, right? You sort of strip out um, being the bad guy. That's Napoleon, by the way. <laughs> like, Napoleon I'm pretty sure Napoleon was also the bad guy. <laughs> well, yes, but I mean, like, <laughs> not a Nazi. <laughs> or you just turn that dial a little bit forward and, you know, five years after the battle, what are the repercussions? Like so many people died. Mm -hmm. Who's left? How are you rebuilding? Uh, you know, similarly, you look at like the Battle of Normandy, right? Um, you know, looking at uh, what an invasion of that scale looks like, sort of the, you know, the human cost that goes into that, the the kind of like, you know, your band of brothers type story, right? You can, you can draw from that very easily. Um, yeah, I love, you know, everybody in the party was at the same battle. Right. Not even you may not even have been like together. You may not even have even known or known each other at the time, but you all lived through that same shared trauma. Yep. Um, or victory, actually, right? It doesn't need to be a terrible thing, right? We were all there when the war ended. We were the victors. Mm -hmm. Uh, then of course assassinations are also large inflection points, right? So if you if you set the kind of political climate um, analog in your world and then kill the same uh, influential person, like how does your world respond, right? Like when Franz Ferdinand is assassinated. Um, I, I knew I knew you were going there because we've talked about how insane this was. Because that story doesn't make any sense. If you wrote it as fiction, you would be laughed out of the room. <laughs> Right. You bring it to a, a table and people would be like, this makes no sense. Stop railroading us. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like, oh, sure. He just happens to break down outside of the sandwich shop that the would be assassin was grabbing his last meal before, like disappearing into the wind for failure. OK. <laughs> Talk about failing forward. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you can also focus instead on on periods where you had this unique political climate or strange political maneuvers that were really inspiring. Like we mentioned the fall of Rome uh, last episode, but like that set off a period of the Dark Ages for a thousand years. Um, you know, we've we've talked about before, like if you set your game right after the fall of Rome, you are playing like a, a, an early medieval apocalyptic setting. Like you are playing the post-apocalypse. You just don't have um, the trappings of revolvers in the Old West. You have the trappings of uh, swords and bronze armor, I guess, is all that's really left at that point, right? Yeah, I mean, I actually often think about uh, a pre-Columbian game where like 100 years before European contact is an extremely different game from like 1491 versus 1494. If you want to get into something more like on the religious end, like something like the 95 Theses, right? Like the start of the Protestant Reformation is like this this massive upheaval, right? Um, so, you know, take the same thing in your setting. Like what happens if like the dominant religion in like sort of the foremost country suddenly has a schism um, and pits like allies against each other as like faith becomes the question, um, you know, in your world? Yeah, I think th this is a good point, right? Like bringing up Martin Luther here. I think often when people say, you know, I want to play a historical game or, you know, I, I want to bring history into my game or, or you know, steal from it, um, they often think of battles and conflicts and, and wars and, you know, military strategy and maneuvering. But it's perfect for politics. It's perfect for political maneuvering, for social games, because... 
you know, like you can you can play a a Yalta game that is all just like political maneuvering and diplomacy, and it has far more reaching repercussions than most battles. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, or like you know, uh, I, I I hate to say it, but like you know, the ninety five theses got state or got uh, nailed to the wall in Forgotten Realms. Um, just Ed Greenwood decided not to do anything about it, but like Mistra ascends or dies like um hello <laughs> like our entire pantheon just got thrown into upheaval and now like what does that mean for faith right because like i promise you like not every supporter is going to believe that this event has happened and even in forgotten realms where deities can sort of demonstrate their power like there's still an element of religious belief right because you cannot see and know everything as an individual worshiper so like what does it mean that a god can die? What does it mean that another a, a mortal can ascend? Right? Like that that would throw so much into conflict. Like they do nothing with it in Forgotten Realms, but you could take that moment and then turn that into your Forgotten Realms game and like that's a pretty interesting setting to me. Like far more interesting than actual Forgotten Realms. Uh, I mean it is cool to take the trappings of the setting that you're importing information into and then apply it to those actions, right? Like, do you remember when uh, Jesus showed up the day after Martin Luther posted his theses and was like, I line edited these for you. Okay. It's actually, this, you got about this is 75 what good ones. <laughs> these, these though, right, not so much. <laughs> these are pretty sketchy. And if I'm being honest, like there's about 20 of them in there where I'm kind of in a gray area and I got a little tired of editing. <laughs> Uh, I'm going to mull it over. Uh, just next time, make sure you check with me first. Yeah. Right? You have my number. You, you can call these like 75 laws <laughs> <laughs> and 20 theses. <laughs> Papers come a long way. We don't. I can fit way more than 10 uh, on right. this, all right? <laughs> uh, if you subscribe to the great man version of history there is um you know a a person who comes along and, and changes the course of history genghis khan alexander the great uh you can port over personalities or actions uh into your game and you know obviously if it's not that particular person then it's, it's going to be somebody else someone's going to come up with calculus yeah um you know like xerxes is really compelling he um you know takes an empire expands it greatly and then marches on um greece which is the only really comparable empire or at least group of city states that he hasn't conquered right like that's a that's a very sort of inciting event if you wanted to play either as you know a, a member of xerxes empire right fighting against like the the firmest entrenched enemies possible or as the greeks fighting for you know their survival like center it around that right it doesn't have to be xerxes it has to be like this uh, like semi-enlightened but incredibly diverse uh, empire that is marching upon a, a fairly like unified group. Yeah, and whichever side you're playing, just make the other side evil sorcerers, and then you'll have the you'll be morally correct. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, you can also look at uh, you know, uh, monarchs who had like very notable courts right uh if you want something more on the political side someone like cleopatra or elizabeth or catherine the great right who rather than necessarily just conquering uh were known for enlightenment and advancement in scientific and and um advancements in science or in politics right the the exciting catherine the great was not known for leading an army she was known for manipulating everyone in europe to her will right 
Yeah, and you can definitely play a fun game in Catherine's Court where you are trying not to be manipulated by Catherine, but also trying to uh, leverage the power that has been granted by you in order to continue that manipulation of the other courts of Europe. Right. The whole game takes place in Vienna, but it's a Catherine the, Ga- the Great game. It's, well, the thing is, Vienna in the wintertime is much nicer than St. Petersburg, even if the port is open. <laughs> you can also look at people like J. Edgar Hoover, right? Uh, typically seen now as a villain, but like if you're in the 50s, right? Like you're in an investigative game, like he's a super compelling character. Um, you can put that in your world as your, you know, head of the Inquisition, right? Um, as, as the head of really any type of of body whose like power has far like outgrown its station right um sort of a divisive figure who's amassed so much personal power that he rivals kings or rivals you know democratic leaders or rivals you know the nobility and it can be fun to put these villainous people from real life into your game and then play up the dramatic irony of the party working for them or not knowing that you know they're actually evil but your players obviously do yeah i love the j edgar hoover as like cardinal crozen um (laughs) in in thrain and eberron right like the the head of the inquisition uh publicly but um like also like quietly like sort of running the country um through that sort of power and fear Right. First, he seems okay. And then it's obvious that he's evil. But is he our evil? Right. Is he actually keeping the communists off? And then, then I mean, you know, mask comes off eventually. And now you have a cool confrontation with steampunk J. Edgar Hoover. Right. Uh, or, you know, what happens after like, yeah, like maybe you take the, the more positive view, right? In that he is, uh, you know, genuinely pro-American and genuinely amassing this power for like a, a positive reason. But what happens when he dies? Right. Um where does all you mean that power... when the party kills him <laughs> sorry yes <laughs> what happens to that power that he has concentrated uh now that it's distributed against people or amongst people who maybe don't have the same moral compass uh for better or worse i guess <laughs> so you can pull at all of these levers you can change all of the assumptions um that people might have in the real world especially if you're playing in you know like a, a fantasy game or a sci-fi game right Uh, remove an inciting event and then, you know, see how your alternate history plays out. You know, what would the world look like now if the American Revolution had actually failed? You can take all these events in the world that we sort of view as immutable, right? Things that, of course, were obviously going to happen and how could they fail and realize that, like, most of them were on a knife's edge at Mm -hmm. one point and they could have gone one way or the other. Right. Um, You know, you can always add magic or future tech. Right. Uh, what if there was weird science in the old West? What if there were uh, psychers in World War Two? Um, what which, if? OK, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, look, the Germans were looking for it. I'm pretty sure they would have found it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, the, the, the core concept of Pirates of the Caribbean is what if all the superstitions of pirates and like, you know, old tales of the sea monsters were true? What if the magic was real? Yeah, I mean, does anyone actually play like an ancient Greece game and not assume that the Greek gods are real? Like people play Homeric games. They don't really play like Socrates and and Plato um, like yelling at each other. Yeah, the the politics of Athens, less compelling if you don't have like Hermes (laughs) facilitating the communication. (laughs) I mean, I play a Diogenes game pretty often. (laughs) I'm playing a lot of Hades right now and like 
getting reimmer or reacquainted with all the Greek gods, uh, the, the video game. And I'm like, man, if you just paint them as more thirsty than they were in the like droll Homeric like poem, uh, it's a lot more interesting. I'm kind of down for this. Or I mean, normal thirsty. They're pretty thirsty. I I guess I don't know. Let's let's. Uh, yeah, you're right. <laughs> it's just they've just put it front and center instead of burying it behind some archaic text. Whatever you decide to do, right? Make sure you frame the outcome around people. Like we learn history through the lens of the people acting in it. We focus on motivations and narratives. We frame the presentation around individuals. Uh, like we mentioned at the top, that's one of the reasons that timelines are so dull, uh, because they're just a rote list of events. They don't give you that context of like, who are the actors in them that you identify with, right? Like when you read a history, a good history, a compelling history, like you put yourself in the shoes of the protagonist character of that history. You're reading the story, not necessarily just the rote fact. Yeah. The worst kinds of history books are the ones that merely lists events well the worst kind of history books are the ones that just make it up and lie (laughs) the second worst are those sure we'll call those history books yeah yeah (laughs) well that's a lot of what like (laughs) historic history books were were commercial uh propositions not academic ones Ishan. so i mean i'm not gonna call birth of a nation an actual historical film we'll call it propaganda They're more compelling if you can focus on the motives and the narratives, right? It's so much more interesting to talk about like why King Jarrett uh, kept his five scions uh, up apart rather than like splitting the nation into five, rather than just saying, oh, Jarrett died and then there was a war. Okay, but you know, how, how were the scions in charge of Seer and the scions in, in charge of Thrain? What were the... How did they feel about each other growing up? What was the animosity there that caused them to turn against each other in the first place? Like the, those human motivations that people can actually understand and in a game exploit. Yeah, I, like if you look at like the Emperor and the Primarchs in 40K, right? Like the the fact that all the Primarchs have their like tropey characterization is sort of what makes it even tolerable to read. Because otherwise, it's a long list of people um, doing whatever right with like without much but like once you start giving them that characterization and you kind of like lean into that like there's some there's a narrative to track there um same thing like birthright is the same way right like there's a ton of founding events that honestly are like a lot of times a lot cooler than the story that you would get in a DD game right like the whole like the the whole like thing around um what's the name of it battle of mount whatever Dismar. That it? Yeah, that's it. It's like the whole. We're not like, going to look it up. The whole battle of Mount Dasmar, like, and and like when the bloodlines were released and like all of that stuff, like it's only cool because they put really compelling characters into that battle, right? And there was like stakes on both sides, and now you're dealing with the consequences of it as like these very very low level bloodlines uh, and and you know special characters running around the world that's so split. Yeah, and it gives you an opportunity to introduce relatable motivations for people or groups who have been cast as the bad guys. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, lots of times you'll see, oh, you know, Horace turns against his father. All right, well, that seems like a stupid thing to do, and like, why would you betray the, all of humanity? Well, if you do- delve into it, there might be reasons that some people might have agreed with in the moment, or you know, the the elves side with. Um, 
you know, evil up until the very end in, in Birthright, why did they do that? What was the motivation? It mm -hmm. seems very reasonable when you realize that the humans were just murdering all of them. Yeah, poor Magnus the Red. Poor Magnus. He just wanted to help his dad. I know. He was just and, trying. And now he's just shame spiral. Yeah. <laughs> right into chaos. <laughs> well, it's that, you know, it's that Aramon. Just can't trust him. Ever. Um, okay. So the other thing, so another way to think about history in your game is through the history of the player characters, right? Like the emergent history of their gameplay written in real time as you adventure. Yeah, what are their motivations? And even if you don't know them at the beginning of your character arc, you will eventually develop them, right? Uh, what motivations are ascribed to them when people hear about uh, what they've done, when you know their reputation precedes them? Yeah, this is uh, this is like that rare opportunity where you get to write your history as you live it. Um, most people don't get that opportunity because we're not, you know, like the president of a nation or something. <laughs> like we're not a king. Uh, I mean, anyone any can become a president. That is very apparent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but only one of us gets to do it at a time. Very few people get get that experience. But like, as a player, you know your actions are being kind of recorded and canonized in history as you move through. Um, so it's interesting to get that feedback. Like, you know, you left, you did something in that town, but what happens when you return? How do people view it? Like, how does your reputation spread? How does it, as you mentioned, precede you when you show up somewhere? Mm-hmm. Think about whether your PCs even care about the historical record, right? Is that something they're typically familiar with? Um, are they going to fight in order to change how they are remembered? Or are they going to be the ones who write it down themselves, assuming that they are going to be the victors? That's one of the reasons that I think a system like Birthright is more compelling sometimes. It's because you know that your actions will have echoes through multiple generations, and you'll actually play to see them pan out. Mm-hmm. Um, now, keep in mind, your backstory is a piece of your history, but it's not the, and it's important, but it's not the most important piece of your history, right? Like, what it should do is frame your initial motivations as a character. Um, so, like, think about your backstory in terms of what shapes your worldview. Um, what demonstrates that worldview for you? Like, are you, if you're a moral and just character, then what event demonstrates that? Um, what is the thing that like crystallized for you that it's important to be moral and just versus taking the easy road? This doesn't mean that everything needs to be decided ahead of time, right? Sometimes a figure emerges out of the shadows, basically shapes historical events and maybe disappears again. And no one really exactly knows where they came from. And it ultimately may not really matter. Mm hmm. The mystery itself might be the fun part. Yeah, like who pulls the sword from the stone, <laughs> right? Like who 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 stumbles upon the Lady of the Lake? Like maybe doesn't matter who you were before then. You still got the sword. You still get to shape history going forward. I'm descended from a long line of ladies of lakes. <laughs> hey, look, obviously can't be a worse way to govern. Okay. Um, so always, you know, focus on what the characters are doing on screen, right? Like, don't dwell on what got written down about a character before the player started playing. Frame your character's history in terms of what they're doing in the game. I mean, that's a a point that I like, where the way that your character plays out, sometimes in personality, but especially in their history, may conflict with the backstory that you sort of scribbled on a napkin at a bar when you were coming up with this idea in the first mm -hmm. place, right? Yeah. That's fine. Like that history isn't set in stone, even though we often think of it 
as it is. Maybe it's just the history that your character has told other people or the one that they believe themselves and then they will come to find out or eventually admit that that's is not the case at all. Yeah, it's it's you continue recasting history as you live it. Right? Like patterns emerge, things change. Like, you know, you you may have thought the rogue was a ne'er-do-well scoundrel, um but by the time you save the third orphanage from from burning to the ground, like maybe you do have a soft spot. <laughs> You know, maybe there is a weakness there. Um, and, and the question is, yeah, like like you said, like, was that the story you told people? Were you lying to people around you? Or were you lying to yourself? And remember that innocuous decisions can have very large ripples, um, both for an individual character, but also throughout history. In a game, this means that you might have a small NPC or, you know, someone who's nameless or doesn't really matter or a, a throwaway event that a character might do just for characterization or for storytelling. And it can have repercussions down the line much larger than were initially intended. Mm -hmm. Like the first and second Port Aquila massacres. They won't be the last. <laughs> Perhaps the most useful for GMs uh, in that you have to plan an adventure every couple of weeks and, and are always looking for inspiration, right? Like lean on history, lean on historical events to take shortcuts in your prep for scenarios right so when you have to have to plan an adventure right like find a historical event that you think is compelling map the principal actors out to your setting and then turn the pcs loose and see what happens yeah all you really need to do in these situations is like set up the pieces and then it is a playground for the pcs yeah um and a nice thing about this is like you can also just use real names, especially if it's not really well-known history or switch a few names around or copy everything wholesale, file off the serial numbers and you're done. Mm -hmm. Alternatively, it can be the real world or something that the PCs that the players recognize as the real world, but you are playing out an alternative what if scenario. You know, what would the world be like? Or, you know, this is also the entire premise of um, alternate history games or, you know, uh, Weird War or like Man in the High Castle. Yeah. And you can also like use these techniques with just like rip your game scenario from the headlines from today or. 200 years ago right like what was the talk of the town what were the current events at whatever period you want to play in um and then just make it the most interesting version right like incorporate a conspiracy um you know make the answer to the mystery the most interesting one right like what if jack the ripper were a cultist or a renfield or uh were, were completing some ritual that summoned cthulhu right like hey that's a lot more interesting than just like oh we actually don't know who it was but it was probably just like you know, somebody who had a had a drug problem. Yeah, because they saw things that no one should ever see. Right, right. <laughs> uh, okay, new new idea for a game. Uh, I'm going to set it in Eberron, uh, in Sharn, uh, mostly in near like a dwarven run tavern, and prohibition is instituted. <laughs> Go. <laughs> <laughs> how long does it take before the party are rum runners right <laughs> and now we're playing eastbound and down uh you also like you know incorporate ideas like specter from james bond right you have a secret cabal of global financiers pulling the strings funding terrorists creating unrest in the areas where they want to make the most money and generally um you know hurting people for the sake of their own bottom line i mean that that's you're not even changing anything. <laughs> that, that's just history. 
Uh, remember that history repeats itself. Even if players know of the event that you're referencing, that's actually great because now they know what's expected of them, right? The meta knowledge can help. It can help them get into character. It can help them come up with solutions. Yeah, and, and any way you cut that, it becomes a unique story, right? Even if they, they lean into it perfectly, um, you know, they have now like played out that story in your world, like in a different setting, in a, in a slightly different environment, or they just got to lean into it and experience it. I definitely wouldn't worry about accuracy too much. I mean, I mean, like we've already talked about, histories are rarely accurate to begin with. But even the stories that we tell about them, the stories that we play in them, Elizabethan or Victorian type stories are pretty much never actually accurate. Um, but, you know, they're stories that people were writing because they were fun or they were interesting, um, you know, because they were getting paid. Yeah. Yeah, this is... um Okay, so w you know about my, like... Uh... A pirate game tm 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 right like the the never will actually be able to execute it game of high seas piracy that i i always want to run in every system um, i mean pretty much the only thing i care about these days is making sure that you can't yeah yeah well the world is conspiring um but like you know we we love these like you know the errol flynn kind of like swashbuckling adventure pirate um because of like these tales that were passed down in like you know elizabethan and victorian england but like, you know, they're just opportunists who happen to know seafaring and don't mind dealing in violence. Uh, and then like all of these historians come along and kind of cast them as anarchists or early Democrats or, you know, like play up how straight they were compared to like English society or how queer they were compared to English society. Um, you know, depending on who you ask, they're either like terrible slavers engaged in the triangle trade or they're early abolitionists for how many slaves they freed. Um, you know, they're either the victims if you're uh, if you're the English or you're, you know, they're the transgressors if you're the Spanish. Right. Like you kind of just like keep running through these circles. Um, it's because the history is inaccurate. So make it whatever the hell you want is the point. Um, make it cool. Uh, but you got to dodge the harmful stuff too, right? And that's the challenge. Yeah, I mean, I love uh, wuxia stories and games, not because they're an accurate reflection of what it was like to be a Chinese peasant in the 8th century, right? Because that would be a terrible game because it would suck. Your life sucked. <laughs> it, it did. Uh, peasants <laughs> yeah. sucked for most of, uh, most of history <laughs> and most societies. Don't be a peasant if you have a choice. <laughs> but... I really like the idea of being like a wandering monk, I guess, who channels uh, chi energy and, you know, can walk on water for short amounts of time and is very good with the sword. Like these are these are tropey for a reason and has the trappings of Chinese history, but certainly not the accuracy. And like that part doesn't matter. At the same time, you know, you can certainly play those kinds of games and, and take inspiration from them and... Um, appropriate them, uh, appropriate the culture uh, in ways that are um, inappropriate. Yeah. So I, I think this is one of those things where, you know, there's a social contract conversation you need to have, like, make sure that you're, you're cognizant of those things, that you're outlining those to the group um, so they understand what kind of game you're playing and that you can, you can avoid some of the harmful stereotypes and, and harmful tropes, right? Um, talk about pirates, like, you've got to deal with slavery, right? Um, 
and and that's uh that's a tough thing to do and a tough thing to strip out of a pirate game is just the reality that like they exist because of the slave trade um and that's a you know we still deal with the ramifications of that today right like that's still the root of a lot of injustice in the world that that existed but you can do things like take it and i mean this is one of the reasons that like fantasy settings exists in the first place is so that you don't need to dive into complete historical accuracy especially right. in places where it would be um irresponsible not to right but if you use the trappings of piracy um the 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 tropes that you want from those types of games right like adventure on the high seas uh black flags and, and parrots and peg legs and put them in a game where you know there's magic and piracy exists for entirely different reasons you can uh, lean into those tropes and take inspiration from the history uh, without being exploitive about it yeah the same thing happens for for like colonization right like if you if you just set your colonies in areas where you don't have native peoples being exploited um, it's a lot less problematic you know, you might still have other problems. Don't get me wrong. It's not a not a panacea, but like, hey, like a gold rush as a concept is like is a really compelling event. Um, you know, if that happens to cross large bodies of water and ships have to move between like traditional empires and the colonies they've set up to exploit natural resources, well, then you've got a ripe shipping lane for piracy. Yeah, murderous native fauna are way more interesting. Than <laughs> most of the things that most colonists in history did, right? Um, and certainly, like uh, your um, your old empires will be happy to export murderous fauna of their own, <laughs> Mur murderous people to go distract and disrupt their uh, rival nations. So you can still have bad guys. You you can uh, you you don't have to create like you know uh, native societies to fill that role. Oh God! Yeah, killing all the buffalo isn't an evil act if uh, an entire uh, entire populations and civilizations uh, don't depend on them. Right. All right. Do you hear that, Asian? Uh, it's the screams and and wails of ivory tower academics who are telling me how to play my games, but they don't understand how it really went down here in the streets. All right. Well, tear down those towers and strip all the copper out of the uh, out of the walls, and let's go to the character creation <laughs> forge and. Forge it into something better. Uh, before we do that, let's talk about how our listeners can get in contact with us. We do love hearing from you. You can tweet at Shane at Mundangerous. That's M-U-N Dangerous. And you can tweet at Ishan at Evil Sans Carne. That's Malice Minus Meat. And you can tweet at the show at TPTCast. You can also email us at TotalPartyThrill at gmail.com. And you can find us on the web at www.TotalPartyThrill.com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at TotalPartyThrill. And join the conversation on Discord. There's a link in the show notes. Are we buying meth with the money we get from those copper pipes? <laughs> yes. Obviously. Yes. Perfect. Total Party Thrill is brought to you this week by Elderwood Academy. Elderwood Academy are artisans who craft amazing gaming products, including dice towers, dice trays, dice boxes, deck boxes, dice, and more. Like the new Spellbook Monster Edition. Um, Seriously, go look at these things right now because they are really cool looking and also sometimes a little terrifying slash adorable yeah so this is their spellbook 
right? Um, which which is like a, a carrying case. You can pick the foam. It's got several inserts. You can carry a mini or some dice or pen or whatever in it. Uh, and you can always customize the cover. It was always leather. But now it, they've pinched the leather in such a way that it looks like a monster's face. So you get to choose what its eyes look like and what its facial expression is. Either two eyes grinning or scowling or Cyclops grinning, scowling, or my personal favorite, neutral. Neutral, the high clops. So yeah, that, <laughs> what you mean? Exactly. You can find those monster spellbooks and many other products at elderwoodacademy.com slash don't split. All right. So this week in the character creation forge, we have, of course, the historian and historian, if you will. Uh-huh. No, the historian. That's the title. Oh, I see. I see. Okay. Um, what does this historian do? The historian uh, travels the world, collecting and uh, collecting knowledge, uh, amassing knowledge into uh, histories. Right? Uh, probably has a base of operations where they feed all that knowledge back for the advancement of all culture and civilization. Sounds like the back computer. Uh, but more importantly, they're incredibly skilled at observation, recording, and recalling information. Super creepy. Awesome. What is the build? Uh, the build is Inquisitive Rogue 11, Knowledge Cleric 9. So from Knowledge Cleric, we'll kick it off with a one-level dip. You get domain spells like Command, Identify, Speak with Dead, and Legend Lore. Yeah, these are all going to help make sure that you're recording the true history, right? That no no, no events escape your, uh, your grasp because you can always just talk to the participants, even if they've passed on. Even if you've killed them. Whoops. <laughs> Sometimes it's easier to talk to them once you've killed them. Right. Uh, and then you get uh, free expertise in uh, two knowledge skills, religion and history are the ones you want here. Uh, then we will take all 11 levels of our Inquisitive Rogue. Uh, that will get us at first level expertise. We'll go ahead and take Investigation and Insight. Uh, we'll also get Sneak Attack, which will uh, end up at 66 extra damage. Uh, I, I like this because, like, you're a student of history. You know lots of ways that battles have gone. You're not doomed to repeat it. You know how to find those soft spots. You'll get Cunning Action for a Disengage uh, or a Dash as a bonus action. And then Ear for Deceit and Eye for Detail means you can't roll, roll below an 8 on insight checks uh, from very early on in your career. And as a bonus action, you can make Perception or Investigation checks. Uh, also at level 3, you'll get Insightful Fighting, which as a bonus action allows you to make an insight check versus your opponent's Deception to add your sneak attack without having advantage on the roll. You get the rogue goodies, uncanny dodge, evasion. Uh, you also get two more expertises, take perception here, and then nature, because, you know, people uh, sometimes overlook the natural sciences, but they shouldn't. Natural history is a thing. We make museums about it, Ishan. <laughs> uh, why are there dinosaurs here? I don't know, but I can find out why. <laughs> a whole planet of Tyrannosauruses. <laughs> Uh, then at level 9, we'll get Steady Eye, which grants advantage on investigation and perception checks if you move at half speed or less. And then, of course, Reliable Talent. You're not rolling less than an 11 on... Sorry. You're not rolling less than a 10 on anything that you have proficiency in, which is many, many skills. Uh, and then from there, we will finish out our Knowledge Cleric levels, so up to level 9. Uh, level 2, we get our Channel Divinity, Knowledge of the Ages, which... Uh, lets you gain proficiency in a skill or tool for 10 minutes. Um, probably good if you need to sneak or do some traditional rogue stuff. Um, go ahead, channel your divinity for that, because 
it's not really your role. I mean, this is a really nice combo with uh, reliable talent, right? Because now you have proficiency and the minimum role is going to be a 10. So you're going to be very good at anything for yep. at least 10 minutes. Yep. You can destroy undead up to CR one half. And um, you can use that channel divinity two times per rest once you hit sixth level. Then at level eight, we get potent spellcasting, which gives you your wisdom modifier to your cleric cantrip damage. Uh, but what we're really here for is level nine. You get fifth level spells, which includes legend lore. Now, as I mentioned, um, think of legend lore not as like uh, a divination beseeching like some divine power to give you the knowledge that you seek. Think of it as magically accessing your vast wealth of knowledge that you've stored in that library and all those books that you've written over time that you've amassed through your adventures. You now have near instant ritual recall of whatever facts you need, because if anybody in the world knows it's going to be you, the historian. That's why they call you the historian. All right, before we wrap up, let's take a moment and thank our Patreon supporters. Your support is what makes it possible for us to keep doing this show every single week. So if you'd like to learn more, you can check out all our rewards at patreon.com slash totalpartythrill. You can also leave us a five-star review on iTunes. If you do so, we will read it on the air. So what do we have planned for next week's episode? We are talking about using giants in your game that's a tall order and in the character creation forge we're building stones throw well that's it for episode 280 of total party thrill i hope we lived up to our name but either way i'm shane and i'm ishan thanks for listening so this week total party thrill is brought to you by kobold press and tome of beast 2 which is now available on the kobold press store the publisher of the original smash hit Tome of Beasts, Cobalt Press, has wrangled a new horde of wildly original, often lethal, and highly entertaining 5th edition compatible monsters to challenge new players and veterans alike. So Tome of Beasts 2 brings 400 new monsters to 5th edition, from Angelic Enforcers, Sasquatch, and Shriek Bats, to Psychic Vampires, Zombie Dragons, and much more. In addition to the Tome of Beasts hardcover volume and PDFs, you can get monster pawns, virtual tabletop versions, and monster layers with beautiful maps at your favorite VTT platform of choice. So find out more at cobaltpress.com and tell them DSPN sent you.